Hello, my name is John Dutton. I am currently Chief Executive of the Rugby League World Cup 2021. This is the Olympic Mindset Podcast. You've got to be a champion at home first before you can become a champion in the workplace. Just really hard, really hard for me to watch that back because um, it's quite embarrassing. I didn't enjoy a single moment of it. It, it, it was hard and brutal. Do we carry on without them and exclude some of the world's best athletes? If you embrace the challenge, the achievement will follow. Hello, and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset Podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. This week's guest is the amazing John Dutton. As some of you all know, this podcast does have to be recorded during my holidays, which means there is sometimes a slight delay between the recording and the release. The benefit to this slight delay is that many of our guests have the opportunity to move on to new opportunities and demonstrate that the Olympic mindset is a very real thing. As you may remember, last week's guest, Montel Douglas, had progressed from being part of the Team GB bobsled team to being appointed one of the most recent gladiators, Fire. This week's guest, John Dutton, has also progressed since we last spoke. At the time we interviewed John, he was the Chief Executive of the Rugby League World Cup. Since then, John has been appointed the Chief Executive of British Cycling. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a CEO? Then this is the interview for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Wherever you listen to this podcast, please like or subscribe. It really helps. Before today's episode begins, I wanted to take a moment of your time to talk to you about our latest partner. Today's episode is brought to you by ClassVR from Avantis Education. ClassVR is an award-winning, all-in-one VR and AR system for schools. It's designed specifically to help raise student engagement and increase knowledge retention. I was first introduced to ClassVR back in 2017 when I was a deputy head teacher, and it provided me with creating exceptional learning environments. And it has done for more than 1 million students in over 100,000 classrooms in 90 countries across the globe. ClassVR is unique in that it was designed from the ground up solely for education. Headsets are classroom ready with everything an educator needs to deliver fully immersive VR and AR learning experiences to their students. And with thousands of curriculum-led resources, your children can walk with dinosaurs, hold a beating heart in their hands or travel the world without leaving the classroom. Now, regular listeners will know that I'm a passionate educator and I'm lucky enough to have experienced Class VR firsthand in my classroom. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was to witness when my students were truly engaged in their learning. ClassVR empowers teachers to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. If you're interested, visit classvr.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. So, John Dutton, thank you very much for joining me today. Great to meet you again. And uh, how have you been? Uh, well, first of all, my pleasure. Uh, I've been very well. Uh, thank you. Uh, four weeks, I think, since uh, our tournament finished. Uh, so some time for uh, relaxation, reflection, uh, and very much looking forward to this conversation. 
Great, great. So obviously you've you've immediately referred to the tournament there. So I'm just going to very quickly reel off your uh, your CV. You've worked for the PGA Tour. You've worked as chief exec for the Manchester FA. You've been operations director for the Rugby League World Cup, as well as one of the directors for the Rugby League, I believe. You've been director of readiness for Tour de France, which I want to talk to you about because I've no idea what that is. And then obviously, finally, uh, the chief exec for the Rugby League World Cup which was an amazing achievement, a fantastic event. And as you said, finished only four weeks ago. So, John, how are you feeling in the uh, in the aftermath of that event? Oh, thank you very much. I mean, first of all, I've been very fortunate in my uh, career, 27 years in professional uh, sport and uh, capped off by uh, delivering the Rugby League World Cup 2021, uh, one year later than um, expected. Uh, but a, a real feeling of immense pride in what we've achieved. Um, we had a purpose, a strong social purpose, um, and that stayed with us all the way through, Dom, um, and, and, and for that reason, to be able to see the three winners, men, women and wheelchair, all together on the field at Old Trafford uh, as the fireworks are going off is a moment that will stay with me forever. And we've, we've discussed this already, but that obviously having worked in jobs where you're working for a governing body or, or a particular agency, working in a field where it's an event, so there's a beginning, a middle and an end, how do you deal with all those emotions at the end? You know, you've put seven years of hard work and graft into this journey and then all of a sudden the fireworks are going off, the trophy's been handed over and you're thinking, yes, I've completed it. How long before you think, oh, actually, I'm out of a job? <laughs> um, so from my perspective, um, seven years uh, on the project, um, that's been everything. Uh, it's been a mixture of uh, lots of highs, uh, quite a few lows, um, dealing with some really difficult uh, situations uh, over the seven years, global pandemic, uh, obviously postponing the tournament by 12 months, uh, cost of living crisis, war in Europe, uh, all the things that we've experienced in our daily lives. And it's quite hard to emotionally disconnect yourself from that, particularly as we sort of come to um, wrapping up. I'm sat here in our office that in another week we close. Uh, most of my teammates have now left the organisation. Um, so mi- mixed emotions. Uh, but what I know is we delivered something really special for the sport of rugby league, really special for sports events and really special for the people involved. And hopefully many of my teammates will go on to great things and will reflect so fondly on uh, what we achieved together. So obviously, John, you've got, you know, an an amazing CV and you've got your own plans. Are are you making plans for the next step or are you taking a bit of time to recharge and start again? What, you know, what's the process for you at the end of an event like this? Yeah, uh, so my contract ends uh, in about three months' time. My job at the moment is to wrap up the company, dissolve the company. Um, It is a special purpose vehicle for the one particular reason of delivering the tournament, and that's now done. Uh, So lots of financial reconciliation, reporting, etc. I have no idea what's next. Um, I'm quite excited by that. Um, I am looking forward to a new challenge. Uh, Seven years of anyone's career is a long time to be doing one thing. Um, But I guess it's like uh, an analogy I would use is uh, being in a long-term relationship and making sure that the first person that I meet, uh, that we just take our time to to work things through because it is a big step. Uh, And a lot of my, um, you read out my sort of uh, CV earlier, I've been in most jobs for about five years. So it's been a sort of long-term commitment and that's the sort of uh, role that really gets the best out of me. Something I can get my teeth stuck into is a challenge um, and will really excite me in the uh, crazy world in which we live in. I think you've just touched on a really important point there, John, which you know I want to reference back to. Basically, as you know, we met through the CEO program through VSI um, and obviously immediately was inspired by what you've achieved and, and in awe of what you've done. And I thought, as I've said to you, wanted to get you on the podcast to share your story. Um, but a, a big 
point that has become really evident to me is lots of people that want to be a CEO don't recognize the importance of having the financial or governance acumen. And I think what you're talking about there, you know, the wrapping up of the company at the end, so many people want to be CEO because they want to do the media work, they want to do the commercial exciting work, they don't necessarily see all the the finance and all the kind of admin that comes beneath that. Were you aware of that and how important is that to your job as a CEO? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, yes, aware of it. Um, probably didn't appreciate the size and scale seven years ago when we first had the idea. Um, it's a bit like an iceberg, isn't it? A lot of people see what's on top of the water. It's the stuff that goes unseen below uh, sea level uh, that's actually the really hard yards. Um, and if you go through the journey of the Rugby League World Cup, I was involved in day zero. Um, and what that meant is setting the company up. Uh, I've put the board in place. I've built the executive team. Uh, I've secured the money from government and all the way through. So there's a lot of those things and in particular now the hard yards of wrapping your company uh, up. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a bit of everything and that is mixed with some amazing moments. I've travelled a lot in this job, uh, as you referenced, done a lot of media work, been the front person for all of that. Um, you know, I had the absolute privilege to welcome the sports patron, the Princess of Wales, to our games, um, been stood on the steps of, the steps of number 10 Downing Street and all those amazing things. Uh, but that is balanced by some of the hard yards that you just have to do. And uh, that's just a, a fact of life, isn't it, Dom? I think that's a good analogy for leadership, though, mate. So many people look at those positions and see all the, the exciting things that come with it, but don't maybe recognise the bad side. And I think the closer I get to the position of CEO and the more I spend time with CEOs or high-performing individuals with you, like yourself, I start to realise that, you know, for example, you're a chief accounting officer, right, for the organisation. You're not just the CEO. You're not just the face of it. You are literally the chief accounting officer. So if something were to go wrong financially, you would be liable. And I think a lot of people don't realise that. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps different to um, a number of events um, out there is we have a lot of public funding. Uh, so you will recognise this from uh, your past, that that comes with immense uh, scrutiny, oversight, reporting, rigour, which is quite right, because at the end of the day, this is public money. So uh, we have generated our own funds, but uh, that large part uh, comes with that um, incredible scrutiny. Um, and I think that a lot of the rest of the role from a governance perspective, we live in a different world uh, now, um, and, and that definitely comes with um, the sort of economic, uh, the environmental, the social, the governance aspects that perhaps hasn't been uh, in place before. And the, the sports industry is becoming more regulated with a, a small R. Um, the two things I would point to as real challenges are managing people. Uh, so we had to build a team. We pretty much lost all the team when we postponed. We've had to rebuild that uh, again. Um, and also managing relationships. And, and relationships are so critical to whatever job you are doing. It is uh, the fundamental, um, it's sort of the building block um, to any um, progress and any success. And uh, that's not been without challenge. Absolutely. And you've referenced my past and working in education. You're right. Public sector funding is so heavily scrutinised. Once again, just to reference this point, many people won't realise that the CEO of an education organisation, similarly to a sporting organisation, they are the chief accounting officer, just like with a head teacher or a headmaster of a school. They're held to account for the finances for the organisation. So it's not as simple as, as I thought it was coming up through the ranks. When I'm there, I'll make this decision. I'll invest in this. I'll make sure everybody gets what they want. Then all of a sudden you see you've got a finite amount of cash and you're being really held to account over how you spend that money. And you think, oh, actually, it's not quite as simple as I thought. And sometimes it's about making sure that what your values were at the start 
you know, you have to revisit them and say, okay, are, are these still my values? Are these the things that drive the organization forward? What can be paid? What can't be paid? So I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, what were your values as you were coming through? What things changed? And if you ever had to have a trade-off, what was your process behind that? Yeah, I think what you've described, first of all, is complex decision-making, which is exactly what a CEO or leader is uh, there to do. And working with a board, um, for me, has been, I've really embraced it. We actually put together a board mixed of nominated directors representing organisations and independents, uh, there for the skill set, and I've absolutely thrived on that. And we've got a, a fantastic and amazing uh, chair. From a values perspective, um, the values of the organisation are not a million miles away from my values, and, and maybe that was sort of... Uh, um, influenced in the early days, um, being bold and brave, um, and a lot of what we have delivered was based on a really significant ambition that we had a number of years ago. We had we had no idea, Dom, at the start when we said we'd do men, women, and wheelchair tournaments together, athletes with equality. Uh, we had no idea how we were going to do that. Yet we had that vision, and we've been able to back that up all the way through. What one of my favourite phrases is: "Actions speak louder than words." And, and, and it also, you can have the plan, you can have the vision, it looks great on the wall or on the piece of paper. You've got to get, be able to get out and actually uh, deliver that. Um, another value is uh, authentic. Um, and I would closely attach this to uh, being humble and having humility. Um, and I just think that the way business leaders uh, should operate is if you're not authentic, you will get found out. And having that authenticity, um, maybe uh, sharing some vulnerability with people um, and that's something I've, I've come to embrace. I didn't quite recognise what vulnerability was uh, maybe two years ago, uh, but certainly recognise it now and that's uh, helped me. Um, and, I, and I just think my, my, I'm not even sure this is a value, but it's just more of a sort of uh, trait is just being relentless and determined. And I think if you have that uh, relentless approach, if you're determined, if you're able to build in resilience, um, you can pretty much tackle any challenge, uh, and again, that's not really changed in the seven years that I've undertaken this. The challenge has got bigger, um, and we've had some interesting uh, things to contend with, but leadership can be lonely, and I think the way of dealing with that is surrounding yourself with really good people, whether that's at home uh, or in the workplace, um, and building the resilience and coping mechanisms so that you can get through any challenge. I think you're right, and very early in my career, I, I recognised that leadership was going to be a lonely position for me and I think sometimes you have to make that conscious decision um, it was once said to me if you want to be the man you can't be one of the boys so sometimes you have to take a step back from the group you have to not be involved in all the fun stuff that goes on to be objective and to be strategic and it can be very lonely and very difficult but I think in my in my opinion and clearly in yours the pros outweigh the cons right absolutely I, I, absolutely but, you, but you're right and, and, and you can Look at football, can't you? And being a be, be, being a manager um, doesn't mean that you're going to go out, um, for a night out with the with the team. And it's exactly the same being a CEO, being a leader. You've got to have um, delineation. You've got to separate that line. Uh, but you've also, you know, one of the things we thrived on is creating a, a fun and enjoyable uh, atmosphere. We, we we've spent an awful lot of our lives recently at work, um, and you've got to think find the right balance so that you can take something from it. My, my, myself, my team have had amazing experiences, worked in some of the best stadia um, here in the UK with some incredible athletes um, and had some great memories. So it's just a case of putting in the hours, working hard, doing all of those things, but also taking some time to uh, enjoy it. 
exactly. And I think I want to get this right. I've written it down and I can't find it on my notes. What? So you wanted the Rugby League World Cup to be the biggest and most inclusive Rugby League World Cup of all time? Yeah, big, biggest, best and most inclusive in the sports 127 years. And delighted to say that we've ticked every three of those boxes. Well, the fact I remembered it just about <laughs> is testament to, to how well you kept that vision at the forefront of all the decisions that you made. And I do I do want to reference some of the challenges you went through because you've talked about being vulnerable, you've talked about being humble. And I just want to talk about how you managed to navigate those two quite difficult skills, I think, for a leader to be vulnerable and to remain humble when you're faced with, you skimmed over this, by the way, but they were very, very pertinent problems for the Rugby League World Cup, um, the pandemic was a massive factor. You had the Australian and New Zealand controversy where they were talking about withdrawing. You had Brexit, which massively affected the funding part that you were, you were eligible for. You had the war in Europe, which obviously cast doubt over certain nations and, and that complexity of who would take part in the tournament. And, and then to top it all off, you had the Kaiser Chiefs power cut, didn't you? <laughs> we did. We did. It, it, I, I think I said at the time, it, it, it feels like uh, being a boxer in a... 12 round contest where in the first 11 rounds I've been knocked down and managed to just about get back up in the 12th round I've managed to find my strength and uh, and win the contest and and, and and it was like that for a period uh, Dom if you, if you go back to the pandemic you know we, we, we sat in a room having dinner when the sort of news broke that things were gradually getting closed down and that was in January uh, sorry in March 2020 we, we actually just undertaken our draws at Buckingham Palace which was an amazing moment in January 2020 so we were feeling pretty good about ourselves and our event was not for another 18 months so so we we, we maybe were slightly blasé at the time uh, the pandemic well you know it'll have an impact clearly and when we came back to work in January 2021, even then we were utterly convinced that we'd staged the tournament. We were in such a great position. We'd done a lot of hard work. Um, and then as you alluded to, uh, the closer we got to October and the tournament starting last year, uh, the more the distressing signals came from uh, friends in Australia and New Zealand. And they ultimately withdrew at very short notice. And they gave us an incredible challenge. Uh, we had three options around the board table. Do we just stop and walk away? Um, do we carry on without them? and exclude some of the world's best athletes or, or do we make the difficult decision and postpone for 12 months and we took the latter um, and just trying to remain calm uh, have a sense of perspective uh, during that point particularly when you're dealing with um, you know some re really big life decisions so if we if you think about some of our uh, women's athletes uh, many of whom are part-time they were making enormous decisions about their lives so some around family planning you know, they've been training for four years to participate in a tournament. And we had to sit around a board table and, and take all of that in uh, in a really calm uh, way, whilst externally there was vitriol, rhetoric, um, lots of anger uh, from other people. And this was being um, played out 12,000 miles apart uh, with different time zones. So it's literally 24 hours every day. So um, my coping mechanism was to be an active listener. That was the most important point for me is to make sure we listen to everyone, uh, take on the board views, views of all our key stakeholders, you've referenced UK government, uh, but be really calm. Um, and, and that was what I think uh, got us through it. And then more latterly, um, all the things that you've had to, uh, that you outlined that we've had to contend with, uh, cost of living crisis, inflation at 11%, um, has really sort of hurt us. So we just had to be quite uh, smart, um, complex problem solvers, 
we've had to be really agile. And, and, and that's the same in the pandemic, isn't it? When everyone was forced into work from home and, and you give an example of uh, how it impacted you at, at the time, our, our world was turned upside down, but we had to find a way through it. And, uh, and we did. And I think that was through good communication, um, through being quite bold and trying different things. Um, and guess what? We've actually learned some things from the pandemic that are much better in terms of work-life balance and the way that we uh, can conduct ourselves. So, um, yeah, a mixture of the both. I hope that's not too rambling an answer, but it's just try, whatever the challenge is, and we've had plenty of them, uh, is to stay calm, uh, find a way through by listening um, and by being a really good communicator. I think what you're alluding to there for me is the swan analogy, you know, obviously being graceful on top underneath working like hell to, to get the job done. And I do want to reference back to the Kaiser Chiefs one, because for me, that is a really significant moment because all of these things you've been through, you've been to kind of in private, right? You've been sat around a table with your board, with other people making decisions that then you have to maybe stand by publicly. But essentially, you're in a room away from everybody. The reason I want to reference the Kaiser Chiefs power cut was because that was a very public moment. You were there in person. Everybody turned to look at you, literally everyone in the stadium, probably. How, how did that feel after going through everything you've been through and just about keeping your head above water? How did that feel in that moment? And then what did you do in your head to internalise and overcome and remain calm? There must have been a process that you talked yourself through or you put yourself through to avoid going under and maybe hiding under your seat and having a little cry. Yeah, th- th- there's no hiding place. Um, so when something like that happens, as you say, it's in the public domain, the world is watching and you've just got to accept uh, that. Um, we, the build-up to the week, uh, the teams had arrived a week before, we'd had an amazing media uh, event, um, we'd had a dinner, we'd had activation in the street, and everything was all set for this wonderful start. And as you referenced, it didn't quite go according to plan. The hardest thing there, and, and, and some of this um, I think you can attribute uh, or, or associate with the pandemic, is just completely out of your control. So these things were happening to you, which you couldn't control. Um, how did I deal with it? Um, Talk us through what happened in case anyone listening is unaware, and then tell us what you did. Yeah, so we, so we had, um, we call it a tournament welcome, not an opening ceremony. Uh, we had some of the sports greats that carried the trophies out. Um, we were at St. James's Park in Newcastle, fantastic stadium, full stadium, brilliant atmosphere, everyone ready to watch the England Samoa game, live on the BBC, global audience, uh, and we brought the Kaiser Chiefs to do uh, two music acts. Uh, they did the first, um, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and it was just the build-up, the build-up, the build-up to the crescendo where the final performance came. Uh, and unfortunately, um, something tripped the power. Uh, the PA desk that everything was wired into shut down. Uh, took seven minutes to reboot back up. During that time, complete silence because we didn't use the PA. Everyone looking around and wondering what's happening. Uh, all the performers, the Kaiser Chiefs, etc. Um, and yeah, there was just that moment of it felt like an eternity. It, it was probably it was less than ten minutes, but it felt like forever. Uh, that, as you say, at 50,000 people inside the stadium, millions of people at home were, were all looking at me. Clearly, they weren't. Um, but I, just the first thing for me was to accept responsibility. Um, and it was um, completely outside of our control. But I went to the media room at half time. I apologised. Um, we put some statements out on social media. Um, and, we, and we just accepted responsibility uh, for it. Um, and, you know, I, just really hard, really hard for me to watch that back because um, it's quite embarrassing um, that, that there is no hiding place. And just one such a small thing, and it's like a one in a million chance that happens just at the point where 
Um, you've got that crescendo and you're just about to kickstart 61 games, the biggest sports tournament in the its 127-year history. But you've then got to find a way of, because that was a start-up, we had a five weeks, <clears throat> and as a leader, uh, find a way of uh, being a role model um, and once we've accepted responsibility, sort of moving on and, and, and talking up as it happens, an amazing performance. Everyone had a great day. Um, just a shame they didn't get to hear the Kaiser, Chief, Kaiser Chiefs second try. That's fine. I've seen the Kaiser Chiefs live. They sat, they started with their best one anyway, so they, we, we missed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to, just before we move on, I find it really interesting that you said you felt embarrassed by it. And I think, again, this is something a lot of people may be listening to this podcast possibly don't recognise before they get into a leadership position, that you take more than your share of the blame and less than your share of the credit. And obviously, you had nothing to do with that power cut. But for some reason, you were the one that had to front it up. You had, well, not for some reason. We know why you're the CEO, but you had to front it up. You had to go and apologize. You have had to be the face of it. But I find it interesting that you felt embarrassment too. Is that because you you maybe were showing the vulnerability and then started to feel that emotion? Or were you embarrassed because you somehow thought you were at fault? I mean, I, I'm struggling to understand that emotion. A, a, a bit of both. I, you know, lots of things go wrong and lots of things have gone wrong during our tournament. In the main, it's behind the scenes and you can sit around the board table, you can get together with the comms team and, and you can work these things out in private. This happened in a very public space and it was it, it just felt acutely embarrassing at the time because it, it, it happened. I couldn't control it. I couldn't change it. Yet all of these people uh, on the day where we were starting our tournament um, were thinking um, maybe not as positively about something we've worked so hard on um, that um, they could. Um, so I, I just think that embarrassment was touched with, uh, look, this is in a, in a nanosecond, uh, you feel embarrassed and then you've got to try and do something about it, even though it's outside your control. Um, but it's that, I, I guess it's the difference between something happening publicly, that there is no hiding place, and then something happening privately. And, and, and worse situations have happened privately, but you've got a bit of time and you can manage them in a, in a slightly calmer way. Yeah. Absolutely. And just to go on to now some of the the highlights of the Rugby League World Cup, because as I've already said, you did achieve your mission and it was internationally recognised as a huge success. So congratulations to you for putting together such an amazing event and every decision you made from postponing to, you know, the inclusion of other nations that wanted to withdraw and all that type of thing. It, it all proved to be for the betterment of the tournament in the end. So I just wanted to reference the, I think it was the Tonga and Samoa, um, the hacker. That moment was amazing, quite an emotional moment. So for me, would you, A, talk us through what that was like in the stadium, give a bit of context, and and then maybe highlight your three your three things that you took away from that tournament that you were most proud of? At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. 
Yeah, so, so, so Tonga played Samoa. Tonga in 2017 with the first Pacific Nation to qualify for the semi-finals, and that was a real game-changer in the International Rugby League. Uh, Samoa this time went one step better, and they made the men's final. Uh, so they faced off against each other in Warrington, um, quarter-final stage, and they both have... It's a version of the hacker. It's, it's a cultural uh, performance. Uh, one's called the Sibito, one's called the Sipito. And in their culture, it's a sign of weakness to go first. So we, we were in negotiations for some time about um, coin toss and it was determined who was going to go first. But the players worked out between themselves that they would do it together. And it was just an incredible moment. You could hear a pin drop inside the stadium, which was full. Um, and it, it is a, it's associated with going to war. It's associated with preparing uh, that, but the cultural performance. And they did it. And at the end of it, they embraced each other. And, and, and it was just one of those moments, uh, Dom, where actually what happened afterwards is they, they beat the living daylights out of each other, the most physical contest. And then they came together again at the end and they actually prayed together um, and, and they just had that ultimate respect for each other despite the physicality of the game. Um, so I, I just think that humility um, and respect um, is something we don't always see in sport. Uh, and I think that uh, moment was really special. Other memories for me, um, first of all, our social impact programme. So when we set out uh, right at the start in 2015, we said what happened off the field was as important as what happens on the field. Big drive towards social mobility, particularly in the north of England. And we invested just over £25 million of funding um, into new facilities, um, into a mental fitness programme, into culture and um, making a positive impact uh, on people's lives through tackling inequalities um, by providing opportunities. So really proud of that. Um, really proud at the moment uh, at the final where all three winners were together on the field. Uh, so we had our men's, uh, sorry, our, our uh, men's and women's final at Old Trafford. The night before we had England wheelchair winning, which was quite amazing. Uh, but at the end of uh, the final final, uh, all three winners came together. And that was the moment that was in my mind's eye seven years ago. Um, and what was the uh, third memory? We, we, we hosted the uh, sports patron, the Princess of Wales, which was just a really special moment because actually what we were able to do on that day uh, was celebrate everything we stood for. And we, and we stood for uh, inclusion, we stood for equality, uh, we stood for social impact. And we were able on that day in the rain at Wigan um, to be able to share with the sports patron, the Princess of Wales, that moment. And that, that in itself was pretty special. And England went on to beat Papua New Guinea uh, in the game. So uh, lots of memories, um, massive broadcast audience, uh, every game on the BBC, uh, over 30 million cumulative audience, half a million spectators inside the venue, enormous international broadcast audience. So yeah, really proud of everything that we set out to achieve seven years ago. It looked great on a piece of paper but back to action speed louder than words and you had to overcome the challenge to ultimately get to that point a few weeks ago. Amazing, mate. So you've said this a few times when I met you on the CEO programme and you've already said it today about being a complex problem solver. So you would identify yourself as a complex problem solver. Would you explain what that is and if there are any features of being a complex problem solver, how they're transferable to other jobs? Yeah, I, I think we started off the conversation by saying that this is a project. It has a start, it has a middle and it has an end. And we can produce a Gantt chart and we can work through as um, project managers. But it, it's where the problems and the challenges come that you've started the project, you know you're going to go on it. I was took seven years, it might take 12 months or a different time. But it's about then as the challenges come, uh, being able to find the right outcome, uh, either through negotiation, through diplomacy, through soft power, uh, through listening, through working um, with people, 
that's the bit I'm really drawn to. And actually, the more complicated uh, what I found more latterly in my career, the, the more I thrive and, and the better I am. Um, and it's about, you know, not quite impossible, but how hard can you make something? So you've got to find a way through. And I've always tried in my work, Dom, to articulate everything on one sheet of paper. So whether that's our strategy, uh, we drew up at the start of this year what we call the success roadmap. Yeah. So this year has been quite complicated, but in just getting all everything we're going to do on one page, it's enabled simplicity, it's enabled clarity. And, and that's the sort of complex bit. How can you distill all of that really complicated information onto one sheet of paper that then as a leader, you can get other people on board and you can articulate. I like that. So to be a complex problem solver, you need to manage multiple pro projects and you need to keep things simple and clear. Any other features that you think to be a complex problem? Yeah, and as you've sort of touched on, there's a financial element, there's a time element uh, in any project. The, the end was 12 months longer than we had hoped for at the start, but it had an end. You, know, the, 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 um, you mentioned the director of readiness uh, before for the Sud of France, which was the most bonkers job title I've ever had. And, and it's exactly the same. When I was brought in, my job was to make sure that we were ready for the Tour de France Grand Depart to start in 2014. Well, it didn't matter whether we were ready or not, it was going to happen. And and, and and it's the same with any sports event. You know, we've just uh, seen the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. It, it, it's happened regardless of the um, preparity and the readiness of, of the organisers. They've got themselves into a great uh, position. We, we, we did likewise. So uh, time, finance, um, other elements of dealing with people um, and people are vulnerable, have anxiety, are complex um, and it's to try and get people on side, whether they're the team uh, that's going to deliver it uh, or whether the stakeholders that uh, might have some quite radically different views of we found out of last <laughs> last couple of years. <laughs> so you've, you've referenced it for me, you've teed me up really nicely. Director of Readiness, what is it and how did you get that job? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, uh, Don. <laughs> I, 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 I was seconded. I ju we just finished the, uh, the Rugby World Cup in 2013, which was a brilliant project. It was much smaller than what we just delivered. Uh, we, we had no money. We had such a small team. Uh, we delivered a tournament, 28 games across 21 venues, four countries. It was, it was brilliant, uh, but on a shoestring budget. And off the back of that, the Tour de France was coming up, uh, and I was uh, seconded. Uh, asked by UK Sport, who I work closely with, to go in and, and, and help them. Um, and that was complex because it involved so many different stakeholders, so many local authorities, very rural local authorities uh, who never experienced anything like this before. Uh, we had the big cities, we had Leeds, uh, we had Harrogate, uh, but it was just to try and bring together and, and come the day uh, that everyone descended uh, on us um, was to make sure we were ready. And the hardest thing of all, uh, Don, was unlike the projects I've just done where you sell tickets in advance and people come through the turnstile, you watch on the side of the road. So you have no control over the number of people that were going to turn up. And um, if you go back and you look at the TV pictures, some amazing shots of hundreds of thousands of people um, you know, the cumulative audience on the bad side of the road was in the millions. Um, in the glorious sun uh, in Yorkshire um, in the summer of 2014. So behind the scenes, it was the complete and utter opposite. Uh, but I'll focus on the uh, the public perception of how great the uh, the event was. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it comes down to leadership, right? That that iceberg effect you've talked about, where everything looks amazing on the surface, but I bet it's not that enjoyable in the moment. I think so many people look at CEOs or directors of football clubs or sporting organisations and think, 
you know, the, the touch of the Mike Ashleys really, where you sat in the <laughs> sat in the uh, the boardroom or sat up in the box drinking and enjoying the game. But actually, most people are still behind the scenes working, and in fact, probably don't get to take in the event. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the Tour de France uh, was all of that. I was actually sat in Wakefield in the uh, in the police station, uh, working twenty four hours a day. You, you know, it was there was no glamour to it whatsoever. I thought you were going to say something else. Then I thought you were going to say you got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were in the right place, uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, but but the same with the tournament and, and what we've just undertaken. I mean, it's five, it's five weeks long. Five weeks long is a is a long time for any event. Think of the Olympics. Um, Olympics Commonwealth Games. Um, the first two or three weeks for me personally, I didn't enjoy a single moment of it. It, it, it was hard. It was brutal. Uh, it was hard. You were not sleeping. You were travelling, um, not staying in your own um, house, and, and, and all of that made it really complicated. One of the things I should have referenced when you said top three moments, and this was, this was a massive game changer, and it came in the final week. Is uh, I got the opportunity to run with Kevin Sinfield, uh, and Kevin was doing his um, human feats of endurance. His seven ultras in seven days yeah. and uh, Kevin is one of the most if not the most humble uh, human being I've ever met and he was running seven ultras um, for his friend um, who has um, multi neuron disease uh, and, I, and I joined Kevin uh, pretty tired not in the best of shape uh, and ran with him uh, for a bit and it was just the most uplifting thing uh, I've done in the whole uh, period because it, it put things into perspective and, and you sort of remind, remind yourself I'm doing this amazing job. We've made some mistakes. We've got some things wrong. But largely, it's just been hard but brilliant. Uh, and you've got this human being who's just doing this incredible thing, not for his own ego or for any for his friend. Uh, and, and that was just a moment to always remind me that perspective in anything that we do um, is incredibly important. How do you find the perspective in those moments when they're dark or difficult or challenging? I think I'd go back to um, postponement and give you an example of, I did a live TV interview and it was actually more than an interview. It was like the preview to a, a rugby league show. It was about between 10 and 15 minutes and it was live. Um, and I was really tired, uh, emotional, Australian New Zealand just withdrawn. I was really angry. And my job um, whilst being a friendly way, but baited by the interviewer who just wanted me to say something derogatory about uh, people 12,000 miles away. But on the drive over, it was a wonderful sunny evening. And I, and I just thought of all the um, things that we were doing and thought, we're not on the front line. We're not saving lives. We're trying to deliver a sports tournament. And clearly, we're going to have an impact on people. But just there are people far worse than uh, I am. So stop feeling sorry for yourself um, and, and find the um, resilience to put a brave face on and remain calm. Um, and, and I did. And I, it's not often. I always watch my interviews back because I think you can always uh, learn. But it's not often that I felt really proud of myself. And that was one of those moments where, because I was so emotional uh, and angry, uh, finding that calmness, because I've, I've put it into perspective. Uh, and, and I think that's a good a good trick for everyone. We've all got complicated lives. We've all got lots of things, uh, family, work, etc. cetera. Uh, but when you're managing things, if you can just sort of take a step back and think of the world that we live in, um, I, I think that's quite a, a useful skill to have. I think so. And I was taught quite a useful skill a while ago. My, my boss in, in an older job taught me that if you've got a landmark or a particular place that you pass on your commute on the way home from work, use that as the point where you disengage from work. So literally, you clear the slate in your head. So I had to cross yeah. the Seven Bridge coming back from my job in Bristol, across back across to, well, although I live on the English side of the border, I had to cross the bridge to get back into to where I live. 
And every day I'd be going through all the difficulties, all the problems in my head, making phone calls. And as soon as I reached the end point of that bridge, I would wipe it and think I'm home now. I'm going to be dad. I'm going to be husband. I'm going to be me and try and have that break away from the stress and anxiety of my job. And it really, really got me through some difficult moments. Was there anything like that? Any skill or tool or process that you've been taught? Maybe Chris Brindley taught you something. He's a very knowledgeable guy that you use to kind of adjust your mind in those moments or did you find you just did it naturally yeah just going back to something kevin uh sinfield had said pre- previously um you've got to be a champion at home first because before you can become a champion um in the workplace and and i've always been really drawn to that and i, I knew during this ornament that um i've got two uh, children um i knew it would be really disruptive at home and i found a way to build in my family around that so that they felt they had some ownership and it wasn't just about um me um working with chris has been um fantastic he's been such a great uh, friend uh, but also a, a coach at times and a, and a mentor um and i think chris um from all the different skills that the people on the vsi uh, course will uh, undertake and will hear from his background we found a way as chair and chief executive to align our skills um, and complement each other and and i actually think if you're working with a board it's, it's so important to have that chair and ceo uh, relationship that's positive but professional uh, you know what the boundaries are uh, we haven't always agreed which i think is healthy in itself um but to try and find some of those skills um i think from a resilience um perspective just just it's the small wins isn't it um going home for a night a week for me it was just brilliant and and i found a way particularly in the last two weeks even though i was really tired of making sure um even if it's 100 miles i'm just going to go home because i knew it would make such an enormous difference to my mental well-being and uh, i mentioned running before i'm, I'm not very good at running uh, but i love it and i love it Dom, more because i think it's great for my mental well-being rather than my uh, physical well-being and you know when, when you said talked about the drive home i i can do that on run and I can just get rid of everything that's happened in the day by just going running um, and just starting to think about uh, other things. So um, different people will have their own uh, tactics, but it's, it's really, really important, I think, to try and delineate between um, home and work. And there are at times, particularly as we're all working more from home and virtual uh, thing, but, but just have that delineation. Uh, and I think that will help um, enormously from a mental well-being perspective. I love that line, become a champion at home first. I think that's really pertinent and really important because, you know, particularly as I've already spoken to you about this, you know, next steps for me, I'm really enjoying my job at the moment because I've got a great work-life balance. I feel like my organization I work for understand the fact that I'm a father of three now, you know, um, uh, yeah, the day I arrived was the day he, my, my son was born. I don't know if you remember. I, I was I was late. I think I arrived before you because you came in later, but yeah, my, my son was born the day before, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking I don't want to let the family down because I love my job and I love what I do. And I love that I'm afforded the opportunity to work on an amazing level and work and meet people like you. But my family, the reason I do it is not for any other reason. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Yeah. And, and I think the older we get, we get a bit wise, a bit more wise. And, um, you know, my, my one of my children now is um, in his early 20s and it's a long time um, since he was born and, and we had that opportunity to spend those special moments together. But that, what that means is it just puts things, um, it makes you reflect, I think, a little bit more uh, as you get older um, and it makes moments in your career or, or at home um, more special. You know, going away on a family holiday is incredibly special because, you know, actually um, you're going to have to work really hard either side of that and you're going to get straight back into it. But just having 
moments along the way to uh, look forward to uh, and moments on the way that as a family can reflect uh, back on and ma- making sure that in our career we, we don't burn out uh, and we don't um, we, we, we don't let work just take over our life and, and it's hard to say as a CEO because the amount of hours that I worked over the tournament was incredible but I was always able to remember my family um, and just keep things uh, a bit more balanced. I love that. And before we, I've got some quick fire questions for you just to finish off. But before we do, for anyone listening that doesn't know, Chris Brindley, MBE, was the chair of the board for the Rugby League World Cup, appointed by yourself. Um, he's also the former managing director of Metro Bank, and he's coming on this podcast. And so he's going to be a great person to introduce to the people listening at home. Um, so some quick fire questions for you. John Dutton, what does good leadership look like to you? Uh, empathy, uh, resilience, um, vision and complex problem solving. Now tell me about a time where you were the best leader you could possibly be. The, the, the biggest moment in my career, 27-year career, was uh, when we postponed the tournament um, and, and being able to bounce back from that after the disappointment of spending six years planning for it. Uh, what did I do after feeling sorry for myself for a very short period of time, going for a walk with Chris Brindley, um, so he could put that into perspective, uh, was to draw up a plan, surround myself with a really small team uh, and get on with it, just get on with it. And, and, and I, I'm really proud of that moment because um, it could have gone the other way. I, I did feel like walking away at that point um, and just saying, I've, I've done everything I can. Uh, I'm so glad I didn't um, and just had that um, vision to uh, vision and determination to carry on. Was there any moment in your early career that was your greatest moment of growth that put you on the track to being the leader that you are today? Yeah, in, in 2010, we got the opportunity, myself and my business partner at the time, uh, to run the World Blind Football Championships. And it was an amazing experience. First of all, we were working with blind athletes. And I remember sitting down with England football uh, teams of blind football. Uh, and they said, don't ever feel sorry for us. Always treat us as athletes. And it was just a brilliant moment that then allowed us to build this event at the Royal National College for the Blind in Hereford um, to give people wonderful life experiences, but treat people as elite um, athletes. And, and, and I always reflect back on that. It was a really small version of what we've just done. Um, finding money, uh, broadcast marketing, uh, dealing with teams, all, all of that, uh, but work, working with um, some really, really special people. Nice. In your experience of working in multiple sports at the highest level, what are the three or however many characteristics that you see in sports people and in the sporting world that do transfer really well into the life of a leader? Um, I, I think number one is looking after yourself. As an athlete, you've got to be conditioned. I think it's the same in leadership. Uh, I think you've got to look after your mind and uh, your body. Um, I think reflection, uh, so people will uh, play a sport, uh, play a game, uh, compete, and then will reflect. And I think it's the same in uh, leadership. Um, and I think determination, um, you know, if you, if you go out maybe over the last couple of uh, mornings when we've had minus um, uh, temperatures, um, athletes will still go out and still train and still prepare as hard as it is to get out of bed. And it's the same with leaders. You, you face some difficult uh, days where you feel like hiding under the duvet, but you've got that determination um, to be able to get out of bed and, um, and, and tackle it head on. So I think there are so many similarities between um, professional athletes and uh, high-performing uh, teams and high-performing leaders. Um, and it's all about that sort of cycle of uh, training, preparing, performing, uh, reviewing, reflecting um, and going again. The last question is, if you could go back and speak to a young John or somebody starting their career now looking to be a CEO, what one piece of advice would you give? Follow your dream. 
follow your dream and, and, and there will be times where it becomes hard, there'll be times where you feel disenchanted, disenfranchised, uh, follow your dream. And if you follow your dream uh, and have that determination, I'm sure you will succeed. My favourite quote, I'll leave you with this, uh, Dom, without challenge, there is no achievement. Um, and I think that perfectly sums up the journey we've been on and many people's lives. If you embrace the challenge, the achievement will follow. I love that, mate. Thank you for your time and look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. A big thanks to all of you for listening today. If you've liked what you've heard, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, completely free of charge. See you next time.